we see death every day, unfortunately, but not like that. That was different. On New Year's Day, 1996, people living in a South Knoxville neighborhood were trying to piece together their neighbor's brutal murder. It was very disrespectful, the things that happened to her after her death. And now more than two decades later, her children say they've forgiven her killer who is still yet to be found. I'm Leslie Ackerson. And I'm John North. This is Appalachian Unsolved, the podcast. Price Avenue is where the murder took place. Frances Worthington, she was getting up there in age. She was 76 years old. At that point in her life, she didn't drive, and she really didn't have a lot of reasons to actually leave her house very much, so she didn't. So her son would call and check on her, her son Mike, the youngest. But when she didn't answer her phone on that New Year's Day morning, Mike went over to the house to check on her because he, he knew that wasn't like her. Wasn't like her at all, Leslie. This was a woman who lived a very quiet life on a very quiet street in South Knoxville. Um, she had been uh, a homemaker for many years, had sometimes had kind of a hard time of it herself, her family would later recall, with some mental health problems. But she was the kind of person that drew no attention to herself and for her not to be answering the telephone was very odd news to the family. When Mike, her younger son, gets to the house, he finds his mother dead in a horrific manner, something that no child, anyone, would ever want to have to experience. Leslie, it's just hard to talk about, really, if you have uh, basically a defenseless older parent living by herself, widowed, and you go into that house, a house that she's lived in for decades, that you've grown up in, and you discover um, glass broken all over the place, mirrors destroyed, and you come upon your mother's body lying on her back dead. In this normally quiet neighborhood, residents are realizing their worst fears. They look on as police investigate the brutal murder of their friend and longtime neighbor, Francis Worthington. A relative coming to check on her walked in Monday morning to find her dead. So obviously Mike, her, her son is distraught. So he calls his older brother who does not live in the area. This is what the older brother said when he first got that phone call from Mike. My brother phoned and he was obviously very upset said something terrible's happened, mom has been killed. That's right, that's Everett Worthington Jr., named after his dad, uh, the late Everett Worthington Sr. And one of his first reactions is, I want vengeance for what's happened. He immediately came down from Virginia uh, to be with his brother and his brother's family and went into the house and he became enraged at what happened. John, let's talk a little bit about the crime scene. Um, obviously, she had been murdered, but the house was kind of trashed. Items were scattered all over the place. We've seen the crime scene photos. It was a mess. The person who did this had thrown flour and sugar and, you know, was 
just throwing things around trying to find where treasure might be hidden. This is the thing about a homicide which can be just so disturbing. You have a, imagine just kind of a quiet, normal little house that a woman lives in. She takes very good care of it and contrast that with the fact that there's blood spattered on the walls, that there's a, a blood stain, um, a pooling in the carpeting where her body is. There's the victim herself. It's so disturbing you really can't even describe it because it's so upsetting and off-putting. He struck her three times, so he must have uh, struck her once across the body and then the second time on the back and the third time she must have rolled over. So it was uh, a scene that makes your imagination go in the worst possible ways. It's definitely something that Everett and Mike, they will never, you know, never be able to get out of their, their heads. That image is, has stayed with them. It was horrifying for them to experience. And something that was very difficult as well, she had not only uh, been hurt, been struck across her body, she'd also been violated. The killer found apparently a wine bottle in the house and unfortunately and despicably decided to um, do something with that wine bottle, which was completely disrespectful and, and basically ugly, just horrible that somebody would think to do that to another innocent person. Um, that's as much as you need to know about what happened. When court started for this, and there was a suspect in the beginning that we'll get to in just a second, you were in court um, getting to hear kind of uh, the step-by-step -step of what officers found when they were on the scene, and you got to kind of hear uh, their testimonies and the descriptions of that uh, the house. It's the kind of description that sticks with you even years later. Keep in mind, this was back in 1996, and I still can remember it, and I was looking the other day actually at a newspaper clip that I wrote about it, so let me read it to you. This is exactly what I reported 23 years ago. This is referring to the detective who testified. Ed Stair testified that when he went to the homicide scene New Year's morning, he found the victim lying on a hallway floor with her nightgown bunched around her neck. Pennies and miniature candy bars were scattered around her, and some coins were stuck to her body, he said. We spoke with Knoxville Police Department cold case investigator Jeff Day, who is handling this case now. He wasn't there initially when the crime occurred, but as a cold case investigator, he's digging back through all the records and um, evidence that his guys put together back when this crime occurred. And he talked a little bit about this case to us just the first time that he laid eyes on it. It was very um, disrespectful, the things that happened to her after her death. Now Day and the officers that came before him, when they first looked at this, their first thought was that this was kind of like a burglary gone wrong, a random burglary. There was nothing to lead them to believe she was targeted. Property offenders aren't always violent offenders, so it, it, was, it was an odd case from the beginning, I'd say. That's right. There had been some other burglaries in the neighborhood and because of that, they started looking fairly quickly at a young man who was just 18 who lived in South Knoxville. He actually lived about a mile and a half away, but uh, he was somebody, I guess you would say, it's kind of a classic phrase, known to the police. 
and they brought him in. His name was Ricky Wayne Womack Jr. He was 18 at the time and was living with his mom, as I say, about a mile and a half west of Mrs. Worthington's house. He had been known to do some burglars in the area, and he was known to the investigators and the, and the patrol officers at the time as well. Police bring in Ricky Wayne Womack Jr., young guy with a little bit of some history. He was known, they were familiar with him. Why did that not progress any further? He ended up being charged in that case, and they charged him with some other stuff as well, some of which stuck and some of which didn't. It wasn't a cut-and-dried case in terms of the evidence. Of course, as we've been talking about, it was a horrific scene. It's the kind of scene that you, you just don't forget, as I mentioned. But there was no physical evidence that linked him to Mrs. Worthington's home. There was no fingerprint, for example. There was no blood that he left behind. He didn't leave any other article of clothing that they could gather. Uh, they, we had DNA testing back then, but we didn't, they hadn't turned up anything in the house. But he acknowledged he'd been there. When the police brought him in and talked to him, he said, yes, I was in that house. I broke into it. But he said he had an accomplice with him, and he named this person as Donnie. He said that while they were in Mrs. Worthington's house, after they broke in, that it was actually Donnie who was the one that turned on her and killed her so violently. He claimed he had nothing to do with that. That was good enough for the police to put a charge on him. We went to General Sessions Court for what's called a preliminary hearing, which I can remember co uh, covering. But um, that's all the state had at the time. The defense argued strongly a couple things. They said, Your Honor, Mr. Womack is kind of slow, and the police confused him when they were talking to him during his interview. They messed his mind up in terms of which house he was at. They got him to say he was in Mrs. Worthington's house when he wasn't. Judge didn't really buy that. They also tried to argue that there was this guy named Donnie and that Donnie was really the bad guy. The police, however, it came out in court, said, well, no, we discount that because this person he claims, uh, the so-called Donnie, actually w couldn't have been with him at the time of the home break-in and the killing because he was in custody. So these charges are dismissed, never makes it the grand jury. Later that summer, I think it was in August, the grand jury comes back with a ruling, what's called a no true bill. What that means is, we have looked at this case, we've heard the evidence presented by the state, and at this time we cannot indict. So the case is done at that point for Ricky Womack. So no conviction with Ricky. Where is he now, though? How, how old would he be? Leslie, this is kind of one of the odd things, I guess, about living in a community for more than 20 plus years, you, you have a long memory and you pay attention to those people who live in the community with you. The truth is that he's still around um, and he shows up every once in a while. He crossed paths with Knoxville police. I can remember an incident in 2014 where uh, he got into some kind of a skirmish with the cops. They arrested him. I remember that one distinctly. And just last month, we're talking here in November of 2019, just in October. I was looking at the daily arrest log, and there he is again. He'd been uh, taken in for violation of probation, and as you and I are sitting here today, he's still in jail. I just looked him up. Once Ricky is, I wouldn't say ruled out, but kind of thrown out as a suspect, police really don't have any other avenues, and you can imagine for the two sons and the daughter of this woman. This is a heartbreaking 
thing to have to experience, to have to go with it, and not even to have any justice. What's really unique, though, is the son, the oldest, Everett. Dr. Everett Worthington did something that most sons of women who had been murdered would never do. I gotta tell you, Leslie, it's not something I could do. I don't know about you, but he forgave whoever did this. The family, of course, knew at the time that there had been an arrest after uh, their mother was murdered. They knew who that was. They'd kept track of the case, but they were also aware of the fact that ultimately the grand jury had said we can't indict. But yeah, Mr. Worthington took the extraordinary step of saying, if I am a Christian and if I am a person who lives up to his word, and if I am somebody who is legitimate in teaching the value of forgiveness, then I need to do this myself. At the time of his mother's murder, he was deep into research on the power of forgiveness. He's written a number of books. He just retired after 40 years in the psychology department at Virginia Commonwealth University, where he's a professor emeritus there. But at first, he did say he, he had a little bit of trouble. At first, he kind of battled in his heart exactly what to do, but quickly decided to forgive him after that. He tells the story right after he hurried down here from Virginia, uh, after he got the call from his brother Mike that they were in the house and he spotted a baseball bat. They pointed at a baseball bat and said, I, I wish whoever did that were here, I would take that bat, I would beat his brains out. And he thought about it and he thought about it and he thought about it and he thought ultimately later that night, I can't do this, that's not right for me. I have to practice what I preach. Here I'm a professor, I study forgiveness, I write books telling other people to forgive, but I can't even face the word. You know, mom had taught us to forgive. Well, it would be dishonoring to what she taught us if we didn't forgive. If I could be forgiven for the darkness in my heart, then how could I hold this against him? And even though his two younger siblings were also able to forgive their mother's killer, it was really difficult for Mike, the youngest brother, because he was the one who had found his mother's body, the first one to see and experience all of this, and he really could never get over what he saw, and he fell into a depression. I remember, uh, Leslie, I believe he was called to the stand for that preliminary hearing that I mentioned to you. And he had to be the one to testify that he'd gone to the house and discovered his mother's body. And I just, when you're a reporter and you're sitting in court, as you know, all kinds of things go through your head. And it's just, again, you're thinking, I can't imagine having to deal with that. And I remember him testifying. He had his young son with him that day. Now, I don't know that the boy went inside the house, but the boy was only about 10 years old. So you think about the impact that something like that has on you. It'll never go away. It'll always weigh on you. And I can even remember, I think I was reading the paper one day and I saw an obituary for Mike Worthington and the name rang a bell, kind of nagged at me. I was like, how do I know that name? And then I realized I made the connection. What's sad is Mike took his own life in 2005. That's how he died. His brother Everett would say that Mike would spend all weekend alone sitting in a dark room just thinking about that crime scene that he had seen years before. Everett said losing his mother was one thing, obviously horrifying, but she was 76 years old. He had spent a large chunk of his life time with her, um, but it was much difficult to, to lose a younger brother to something such as suicide. And it actually was much harder for me to get over than uh, 
you know, even the mom's murder. So today, 20 years past this crime, we are kind of in a standstill. That's why it's considered a cold case. Ricky is still out there. One of the top suspects may still be on their list. Why is it still a cold case? What are we lacking right now for police to wrap this up? Well, we are no further along from an evidentiary standpoint than we were in January 1996 when Ms. Worthington was found murdered. There's no other evidence that KPD has to go forward on the case, at least that they've indicated to us. I know you and I have talked to Jeff Day. You know, if the killer were to confess, obviously that would be something of great significance that they suddenly could use. If after being arrested, let's say, somebody said, you know what, this has been weighing on my mind for many years and I just need to say it. I was in that house and here's what I did. Then they'd have somewhere to go. They don't have that so far as you and I both know. You know, it's been a long time and this family really deserves closure. And that's kind of what we're waiting on. Any evidence, anything that anyone saw that could help police finally crack this case would be much appreciated. But for Everett, the oldest son, he says he doesn't need anybody to be behind bars. He's already made peace with that. And I think that's something that's really incredible that's come out of a really terrible situation. Whoever did this, I feel like I've forgiven them. I feel sorry that they got to the place where they would do a violent act and take a, a life and uh, happen to be one that was precious to me. If you have any information on this case or any other cold cases in the Knoxville area, you can contact the KPD Violent Crimes Unit at 865-215-7317 and you can remain anonymous. Thank you.